Hi, and welcome to the Inspired Jewish Woman podcast. I absolutely love and value that you are here with us right now, and I hope you will hear something on today's episode that will touch your heart and soul in a beautiful way. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Eve Levy, and I'm here with Ali Began. And we're actually in Israel right now, recording this spontaneous podcast. <laughs> yeah, Eve says she's never done such a spontaneous one. I don't know exactly <laughs> what that means. I'm actually leaving their house in like 40 minutes. I'm like, quick, let's do this really, real quick. But this is actually a very, very unique podcast. And I think it deserves some attention. So let's just jump in. Well, first of all, just to introduce you and you could jump in and introduce yourself. So Ali is my partner in crime. How do we describe our relationship? And we started off as friends and then that turned into soul sisters. We were part of a group of women that really supported each other over the last, how many years? Five, six years. We were brought together by Elisa Bulo and we just kind of started over there on a support colleague basis. But now we're working together as colleagues, co-leading the L'Chaim Center for Inspired Living in Deerfield. So lots of hashkacha pratit, lots of divine intervention, how that all came together. And here we are. So what's amazing about our relationship is Ali, her and her husband and her children, many of them have really ventured into their dream, living their dream. And they moved to Israel to make Aliyah. And Ali's a life coach. So you probably know this better than me that when someone lives their dream, it actually makes space and gives permission for someone else to step into their light and live their dream. So that's kind of what happened in our friendship because you living your dream of making Aliyah enabled my husband and I to continue our dream of helping the Jewish people in the diaspora. So thank wow. you a million times <laughs> I over. I know, but it's so true. It's, yeah. it's I mean, it's yeah. in every way, every single person, when you step into your power and your light, you literally give permission for other people to do so. That's kind of what happened in this way. I mean, I'm forever, forever grateful for this opportunity. You left me with literally your baby. The L'Chaim Center is your baby, the most precious people. And it was hard for you to leave. And you put them in our hands and you trusted us. And to that, I must say, mommy number two is doing a very <laughs> good job. <laughs> Baruch Hashem, we're, we're so, so very blessed. Good job. It's uh, not something we take for granted. So let's jump into our conversation. So this past week, you did something very brave, very scary, I'm assuming. Yeah. And, and you shared a piece of yourself with the world on H.com, which is one of the largest Jewish websites Mm -hmm. in the world. I think they have over a million viewers a year, right? Mm -hmm. It's really, really big. And talk about, you know, getting on a microphone and getting on a soapbox and getting your message out there. I mean, this is one of the probably biggest ways, most powerful way to impact the Jewish world. So I don't even know if you realized what you were saying. I'm saying, uh uh-huh, because I don't know what I realized. (laughs) It's pretty big stuff. And you shared a piece of yourself that I think to many people might've been a little shocking at Mm -hmm. first, very vulnerable, very real and raw. And once again, that gives people permission to also be themselves and to share their truths Tell us a little bit what it was like and what inspired you. Tell us the topic that you spoke about, that you wrote about, and tell us more about this whole idea that you're now developing and sharing with so many people. Because I know that in response to your article being published, you've had hundreds of comments 
And the ripple effects from what you put out there is, I think it's bigger than we could ever, ever imagine. So why don't you just start? Well, yeah, to touch on what you're saying, Eve, um, I kind of wrote the first article on my relationship to alcohol with a second article in mind, which was how I stopped drinking and what kind of mindset allowed me to stop a behavior that was like everything to me for almost 20 years. And I will talk about that. But after writing the article, the second article became far less important because I discovered an epidemic that is even perhaps greater than alcohol and led me to understand that there was something bigger going on than like, let's say it's elemental parts. So in other words, for one person, it's gambling for one person, it's pornography for one person, it's blame or eating or eating, talk about that? eating, 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 eating. <laughs> or alcohol or whatever it is. We all have a drug of choice. A drug of choice. <laughs> and it can be all sorts of things. And there is almost like an umbrella epidemic that encompasses them all. And that's what I came to see through virtually hundreds of responses. I like to ultimately call them and create some sort of document because they were so similar and they pointed me in a direction very different than what I intended the article to address. Mm. Uh, not that the article doesn't address the important issues around gray area drinking, but it became larger than that. And gray area drinking is almost only one manifestation of mm. something bigger. That's something bigger. I'm assuming, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but I'm assuming it's shame. It's shame. Shame. It's shame. Shame and some of its cousins. So it's called gray area drink. That's the topic that you spoke about. The article really did address a phenomenon, a syndrome, a condition. I, I can't quite put my finger on the word that it is, but let's just say a way of drinking. And that's something that I've never heard about. Nobody before. has. I mean, it, I shouldn't say nobody. But right. So few people. I, I mean, alcoholism is something that is very prevalent in our society. Yes. Everyone knows someone that is in a 12 step program that is, is struggling with a real addiction. And I like the name gray area drinking because it's not black or white. It's literally in the gray area. Right. I want to say that it is such an illustrative name because it's really addressing that amorphous gray zone between two distinct points. One point is not that you never drink at all, but you have no emotional charge around drinking. You're a take it or leave a drinker. Like I don't notice the wine on the table. Mm. Well, maybe I will have a glass of scotch once in a while, but I don't have any emotions around it. I'm a take it or leave it kind of drinker. That's on one end. And on the other end is alcoholism. Let's just at the most simple level is truly a disease. Mm. So here you are straddling between not caring at all about alcohol and being totally addicted to alcohol. But because no one's ever given you a name, well, you look around, everybody's drinking more than you, or mm. I actually have this under control, or it's not so bad. But secretly, you're ruminating a ton about alcohol. Mm. You're worrying about how predominant and central it is to your mindset. Mm. And drinking has become enormously important to you. But nobody knows because you look totally normal. You are you're holding normal. it together. You're totally holding it together. And there's no rock bottom. There's no rehab. But you know that alcohol is super, super central to you. And you know, at least I did, that at five o'clock, I'd start to get like a mild euphoria because it was like 
my time. I, I'd gotten mm. through the day and it was now socially acceptable to re-engage. Mm. And I knew what was going on within me, but because it was in that gray area, nobody else did. And so it was very easy for me to justify, to minimize, mm. to say, well, look at them. They drink way more than Don't me. you feel like it's a product of our society is to kind of make light of it and to joke about it. I've seen so many of these memes and you know, the, yes. where, where you say like somewhere in the world it's five o'clock, you know, like says so, like Mahayim, like, you know, pour yourself a glass of wine. I want to know when you realized or how you realized that this was a problem. Yeah, it's a really good question. But just what you said before, it's a little bit like a Dr. Seuss book. Like once you see it, you'll see it everywhere, right? right? How so, so like absolutely normal alcohol is one teacher of mine said, alcohol is the only drug that you have to justify not taking. Mm. It's so normal. It's like mm. fun, you know, it's connection, it's enjoyment, it's right. pleasure, it's relaxation. And it's, it's also in Judaism, it's embedded right. in it. It's Kiddush, embedded. Friday night, Purim, Simchat Torah. Like there's definitely a lot of letting go, like in its right place and time and within reason and balance. But I just, <laughs> I just know that from our experience with having many people come to our home for Shabbat, and we do have a sensitivity that sometimes someone will come to your house and they won't even touch grape juice yeah. because this is a very big issue for them. And if you start, you might not be able to stop. I think that's the important point. And that really is one of the central definitions of gray area is that you don't have a regular relationship to alcohol. So the smell and the taste and even the anticipation mm. of the cold white wine or whatever it is, they have a tremendous charge to them. Mm. And that's why your sensitivity is absolutely smart. Although I think it, for me personally, it's very important to me that people are themselves. This is my journey. Everyone needs to go on their own. And by no means do they have to not put anything out on the table. I, I have actually have a bottle of wine open in my fridge and I've gotten to a place where I, I'm actually not desiring it anymore. But yes, everything you're saying is spot on. It's almost like getting off of sugar. I mean, I, yeah. I've been in and out of diets like for the last 10 years. And I just know that sometimes when you start a diet, those first few days could be so brutal. You're just like craving and getting headaches and you're just really, really just thinking about it a lot. And then if you get past like four or five days, you almost like your taste buds have different sensitivities. And when you taste sugar, it's too sweet. Like you really don't want it or crave it in the same way. Yeah. What you're talking about now is really its own discussion. And I think your taste buds do change, but I think just for the purpose of what you just said, what's most important to understand is that willpower does not work. Willpower or what we call white knuckling, which is I, I want sweets, I want sweets, I want sweets, I can't have the sweets. In essence, what the mind is saying is my higher value is to not eat the sweets, but I am so miserable. Oh, wow. So in other words, I want something that's making me miserable. I want something that not having it is making me miserable. So what I've learned is willpower is like a muscle. It's a finite thing. It peters out. And when it peters out and you're triggered, you'll re-engage with that substance, whether it's a cupcake or it's a drug or whatever it is. And then all the shame that comes with it. And what do we do when we're ashamed? We eat more, we drink more. Willpower is a problematic attempt at shifting your whole life. And what I really have learned, and I don't think this is the topic for the podcast, but just in a quick nutshell, is that 
letting go of willpower and really understanding that the way to really overcome anything to the point where you actually don't want it anymore starts with learning. Learn what that substance does to your brain and body. Learn the science of it. Mm. Learn what it does to your psychology, how it gives you like an artificial dopamine rush that lasts for a matter of seconds. And then the depressant that inevitably comes and, and forms all sorts of negative associations that lead you to feel bad about yourself, that leads you to another, you know, re-engagement with that substance. So like, as my friend says, play the tape forward, play forward what it feels like when you do anything that's hurting you, you get the mild euphoria of anticipation, you get the adrenaline rush, the dopamine rush partaking, but then play the tape forward and I think about that. all that comes with it. So the first thing is knowledge, learn the science, learn what happens to your body, your brain, your psychology. The more you learn, the more your second part of you shifts, which is your emotions. You stop wanting it as much. And then you shift your behavior. In other words, willpower is I'm running every day starting tomorrow. But what we're talking about now is first learn what running will do for your body. Mm. First learn what running will do for your depression, about how it will raise your endorphins. Learn the process. It will shift mm. your psychology. And knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. So mm. we really move from knowledge to emotion to action. Nice. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about who inspired you as she's a, a friend of both of ours and what it was like. You were probably contemplating this for a while because it was Katie who yeah. was it about a year Katie ago. Asner. <laughs> Katie Asner is, um, she's a, a great friend of L'Chaim Center, a past participant on the Momentum trip. And about a year ago, I'm not sure when it was, I, I remember seeing on social media, she started talking about quitting alcohol. Yeah. My gut reaction was, you're an alcoholic? Yeah. Yeah. And she tried to explain, no, I'm not an alcoholic, but I do drink a lot and I like it and I rely on it and I'm pulling myself away from it. That was the first time I have heard of such a concept. That's right. Katie, I hope I can speak for you because nobody can speak for another person. But Katie's very open about the fact that she was very reticent, very reluctant. There is no shame about being an alcoholic, but because of her concern that she would be perceived as an alcoholic, she was very reticent to write how to express, but what she did, you know, I say Katie cast her bread upon the waters. She introduced me to the term gray area drinking. She um, made me uncomfortable. I didn't really want to be around Katie because Katie made me realize I am a gray area drinker. Mm. I do not have a neutral relationship to alcohol. Alcohol is probably the thing I think about the most. I believe I can't relax without alcohol. I believe alcohol makes me happy. I believe alcohol makes me social, even though my favorite thing is to drink alone. So the first awareness was Katie. I ignored it for a year, but she did introduce me to the term gray area drinking. And I say this all the time about Katie, but it's really a message for all of us, which is you put a little good into the world, a little bit of awareness, a little bit of just a good act, you just have no idea where it goes. Mm. You have no idea who read that post, who considered it, what trajectory it puts anybody on. We're so limited in time and space. We don't know the effects of a mitzvah, of a good action. So Katie put it out there. I understood through research that indeed I was a gray area drinker. I ignored it because guess what I wanted more than the knowledge that I was a gray area drinker? I wanted to drink. So the question of, so what happened that shifted the trajectory was I just started feeling so bad. Mm. I had inexplicable depression. I had bouts of anxiety. I had, I used to call it 
jokingly the midlife sleep crisis because I'd wake up at 3 a.m. sweating and like what's happening. I'm post-menopause, so it wasn't that. It was just uh, an existential angst and I would wake up like clockwork at 3 a.m. and not be able to fall back asleep, maybe catch an hour or two. And then I would proceed on as normal. I attributed a lot to my move because I left so much back at home. I left family. I left my grandchild, my daughter and my son. I left parents. I left L'Chaim Center. I attributed it to that and yet I knew Actually, there was something else. There was actually a conversation I had with my daughter where she said that she felt I was selfish in my depression. And it knocked me into awareness like, this is not me. What is this? And after the Seder, I came to an understanding oh my God, this is the alcohol. The mm. alcohol is making me depressed. I'm using alcohol to relieve anxiety, but you know what? It's creating my anxiety in the first place. And then I started to think about alcohol, that it gave me this 25 minutes of pleasure and of a rush. But what came after it? Like I started to think about my life in 24-hour cycles, not just the anticipation at 5 and the yummy drink at 6.30 that lasted till 6.55. And, and then you start to get mildly down, which is when you reach for the second drink. So I started just to think about all this stuff. And I realized a lot of what I'm experiencing in my life that's very troubling is alcohol induced. And I just sort of had an epiphany. And I went to my computer and I re-engaged with the whole concept of gray area drinking. And at that moment, the night after Pesach, I stopped drinking and I haven't had a drink since. And counting it like days, like <laughs> almost like sobriety. No, it's a good question. And I'm, I'm sorry if I interrupted you, but I want to say no. And that's what's so incredible. For 20 years, I didn't see anything but the bottle. <laughs> I mean, of course, I was a good wife and mother and a Revitson, but the bottle was so important to me. It was my friend. And I'm only counting because it's the 49 days between Passover and Shavuot, mm. which is so cool if you guys know what I'm talking about. But I'm actually losing my taste for alcohol. And that is because I joined something called the 30-Day Alcohol Experiment from Annie Grace, who wrote a book called This Naked Mind. Sounds a little like uh, Orwellian, but it's not. She really rewires your brain to the point where you actually don't want to drink. So I don't even really want it. There are times I'm sitting on the deck, it's dark, it's 7.30 p.m. It would be so normal. My brain couples wine and relaxation, wine, pleasure, wine, 7.30 p.m. I have a coupling in my neurology. So it takes a while for that coupling to decouple. But the truth is the answer is I'm not counting. I'm not using willpower. I'm actually changing my brain and it's in a positive, good, healthy way. And that feels very affirming and healthy. And I feel so much better. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I don't know. It's amazing that you could put your mind to something and change. <laughs> in the blink of an eye. And I don't mean to minimize. If you could the do church. this with this, you could probably do it with anything. Well, I started to think about that, but what happened in the wake of the article is where I'd like to ask you permission to move into because yeah. it's what I really, it's the epiphany of what I learned through the writing of this article. Yeah. At first, I'd like to discuss what I came to understand by virtue of reading the hundreds and hundreds of comments that I received. Do you think people were just in shock because everyone perceived you to be this like perfect Robinson on a pedestal, like you got it all together. You do seem to have it all together. And all of a sudden you opened yourself up in a way that people were surprised, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone, I yes. think because I remember reading it and I was like, 
Oh, oh my, my even my husband was like, did you read the article? <laughs> we were on the bus when we got it and all the ladies from Deerfield, we were all like texting each other, like read this article that Ali just posted. Like, I think it was an element of surprise mm-hmm. and awe in how real you were, your vulnerability, your authenticity. It's not so common to find that. Brene Brown talks about it a heck of a lot and mm-hmm. we're obsessed with all of her teachings. But it's very different to read it and to talk about it, like how cool her content is. It's a very different experience to uh, put it into action. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things to say about what you just brought up. But I just want to say that I think for reasons that H.com has to do, there is no comment section. So there were no, they disabled it, probably trolls or whatever the issue may be that warranted them disabling the comment section. So there were no comments on the article, but through Facebook, but more importantly, emails, voicemails, WhatsApps, I received almost 300 personal emails, WhatsApps, texts, etc., And they were almost without exception, the same. They weren't about, I'm also a gray area drinker. Some of them address people's specific demons, but 90% of them, and I hope I'm being accurate and not exaggerating, 90% of them were, I was very surprised. Um, I had put you on a pedestal. Maybe I wanted to see you as perfect, but I am so relieved that you're not. And I am so, so grateful that you had the courage to be real. And I am so grateful that your vulnerability is helping you and is opening the door, like you said, Eve, is opening the door for others to show up, be honest with what they're struggling with, understand that it doesn't make them bad. It's the struggle that they have. And I I do want to talk about our perception of struggle and that it's okay to have it. And not only okay, but it's what makes us human and in the world is the struggles that we have. So I would say that there was definitely a little bit like, whoa, Mm -hmm. but after that was incredible gratitude that someone shows up in their vulnerability, Mm -hmm. someone who's in a position maybe of looking like they have it together and saying, no, I'm in this with you. And this is my struggle. Mm -hmm. And I'm not ashamed. There's really no such thing as perfect. (laughs) I believe only God is perfect. I do believe God is perfect. But human beings are perfectly imperfect. Exactly. And and that once we could realize that and stop pretending. Right. it, It just, as we said in the beginning, it gives permission to others to be okay with themselves and takes away the shame. We don't have to carry all that shame and guilt and pain and regret and remorse. I mean, you know, we're good people, I think, and we all want to grow but we get stuck. We get stuck and I'll never be that and I'll never get there. And that is a shame because well, maybe we won't ever get there, but as long as we're, we're growing and, and putting one foot in front of the other and becoming better every single day, I think we're doing well. Exactly. And that's where it's a shame. Mm. That's a shame when we don't know that, but we don't know that. And, you know, I was talking yesterday with my dear friend, Ilana Callen, and we were talking about shame and we had such an interesting conversation because I want to share with you just a little bit about where the world got totally off track is that God is perfect, but he makes us perfectly imperfect. Mm. He puts us in a body with all sorts of challenges. He gives us specific challenges. He gives us a body and a soul, which 
are always to a certain degree in conflict with each other at at moment to moment. Mm -hmm. He gives us what we call in Judaism, a yetzer hara, a negative voice. It's constantly pulling us Mm -hmm. down into stuckness, into Mm -hmm. frustratedness. He creates us this way because we are meant to struggle. That's only our inner world, but we also have all of our outer circles, like the family we were born into, the financial situation that, right, the society or the time, you know, like sometimes I feel like, why wasn't I born in a different era? Like, this is a hard one to be born into. Yeah, this is hard. I think this is empirically a hard era. But But it's true. And it's really custom designed. It's custom designed for you. But the, the thing is, is that we love that in theory. We talk about that in theory. But when it comes to people's real struggles, that's where people start to hide. Mm. And that's what I think people were so grateful for from the article is, in theory, body, soul, struggle, imperfection, becoming godly through working on our imperfections, struggle, etc. Those are great in theory. But when it comes down to the real thing we struggle with, we feel we need to hide. And what shame really is, is we take that thing, we go into hiding. And instead of looking at it for what it is, which is I am a soul, I am in my essence, beautiful and pure, and I have this struggle and I can bring it to the world. I can talk about it. I can bring my vulnerability to trusted people. I can discuss it because it's not me. It's my struggle. But shame Mm. is where we take my struggle with alcoholism, with food, with resentment, with obsessive compulsive thinking, with pornography, with gambling, you name it, right? And instead of saying, this is my struggle, we say, this is me. I am deficient. I am inadequate. I am not okay. And that's the shame that leads us to go underground and go into hiding. And like you said, Eva, it can be also something in our external world. My sister went to jail or my, whatever it is, something that happened to me in my external or, or my parents didn't give me enough love. My parents didn't give me enough love. I was molested. Right. You could literally carry that story your entire life and almost hide behind it. And you could be a prisoner to it. Not you can be. We are. We are. We are. I know. And it is important to understand that we're wired to keep ourselves safe, to keep ourselves like protected. Mm. And so sometimes we put up an armor that really kind of does serve us when we're young to keep us getting us the love that Mm. we need. But then we schlep that into our adulthood and we keep all the stuff inside. We keep all the feelings of inadequacy aside. And to add to that, we live in a culture of a curated image of oneself, of this Mm. perfectionism. So instead of saying, oh yeah, God made me, put me in an imperfect world with a set of challenges. And yeah, I'm meant to struggle. And what's your struggle? This is mine. We're all in it together. We're I all think on the this journey landed together. so strongly because our generation right now, I would say the last five years have changed so dramatically with the power and the pitfalls of social media and what it's yeah. doing to people that people are literally living through their their highlight reel and that's all they show the world so I think everyone is a little depressed because you're only yes. seeing the most incredible lives and vacations and good hair days and whatever it is that you're seeing in all the people around you which is not the truth it's I call Facebook fake book <laughs> yeah I once heard a phrase When you go on Facebook or Instagram, you're comparing your insides to somebody's outsides, Mm. your inner world of feeling inadequate, feeling frustrated with yourself, with someone's curated external image of perfection. 
Right. And I know we were, we were talking about watching. We don't, we're not going to have time to do it together, but the, this new Netflix series that came out called Inventing Anna, mm-hmm. which is basically a tragic story of a person that literally created a false identity. Like yeah. so much so that she probably believed it. Believed it. And there's such a, there's like not only an escape, but it's also, it's like you're literally living in an alternate reality. Like that's not where we want to be. No, we want to be in the present, in Mm -hmm. our bodies, in our lives, Mm. understanding that our struggle isn't us. By the way, that is a tool of what we call our Yetzer Hara, of our inner critic, of our gremlin, of the voice inside of us. It mutates. This is my struggle. Let's say I struggle with, let's say pornography. So this is my struggle. I have a struggle to go in this direction. This is my struggle. The inner critic takes that and mutates it to, I am disgusting. Mm. I am bad. And once it goes from, I'm engaged in this struggle to, I am this struggle, Mm. that's what creates shame, which creates going underground and secrecy. But most importantly, it creates isolation, loneliness, perpetuating itself in a continuously. But what that really does is it creates individuals who might be physically together or at least together on the internet or whatever it is, but they're all living in their own unique, lonely universe of shame. So what I think what I've come to understand is that the, you know, Brene Brown really had it right. Vulnerability, courage. It doesn't mean you have to write my age.com article. But just to have a trusted friend Mm. and to look that friend in the eye, like I'm looking at Eve right now, and to say, this is my struggle. I am good. I'm godly. Mm. I am literally a piece of God himself invested in me. I am great. This is my struggle. Mm. And there's no shame in bringing it into the world or even in this conversation with you in order to engage with overcoming it in my own way. Mm. And by the way, instead of saying like, I am my struggle, because that's what leads to shame, which leads to underground, which leads to psychological loneliness and alienation Mm. and a sense of being different from people, when in fact, we're all on some level experiencing this very thing. I want to add just a Jewish component to that is about the soul that no matter what we go through in life, no matter what we do, what mistakes we make, our soul remains completely pure and completely tethered to God. There's nothing that could taint it or dirty it. There's no mistake that is not forgiven. God cleanses our soul, puts it lovingly back into us every single day. There's like no space. If you really think about it, there is absolutely no space for low self-esteem. No. Because God loves us. What? We're not going to love ourselves. We're not going to believe in ourselves. He's saying, here you go. Have another day. I'm cheering you on. I'm your biggest fan. So, so important. And and something that we learned on on this past trip that I just came out of, Neely Cousins, who is our trip leader, she spoke about parenting. And and there was something incredible that she said that I really want to take home and, and be more mindful about. She said, instead of seeing words like, come on, guys, you're late. Oh, don't be so lazy. Don't, you know, get your shoes on. Like just all the messaging that we're constantly telling our kids. All they're hearing is late, lazy. Yes. You could do better. Like all they're hearing is that word. And maybe we need to change the narrative. Maybe we need to change our wording. So we're saying we want to be on time, time. (laughs) Um, You could do this. I can do this. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like this is how we could talk to ourselves in a loving way, the way that you're describing. But I think we could bring this into all the relationships in our life. 
absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we could well, do. I would like to say to that point that you're saying is that like, uh, as it says in the Torah, mitzvah, gorera, mitzvah, like success breeds success. Mm, right. The minute you move from shame to vulnerability, where you say, this is my struggle and I'm put on this earth to wrestle with my struggles. By the way, the word Israel literally comes from the verb to wrestle, mm, to wrestle with God. Right. We are wrestlers. We're meant to. In theory, it sounds so interesting. Oh, cool. It's a hurrah, body, soul, really cool. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty of the struggle, oh, we don't want to talk about that. That's not okay. It goes into hiding. So I love what you said about what Neely said, because it's all about shifting the culture, really, to the opposite of shame, which is not having it all together mm. it's this is my struggle and Hashem Hineni like God I'm here like I'm right. I'm in it this is all well and good in theory let's like just activate it so there's two things that I think are very very helpful one is find one trusted friend or maybe it's a sibling or maybe it's a spouse it might even be you and your mirror <laughs> and ideally finding you know one person who's got your back and who you feel safe with and, and share with them what your struggle is and allow yourself to have insecure feelings and ask them not to reassure you. Oh, it's totally okay. You're not like that. You're really not like that. No, just ask them to listen to you mm -hmm. and begin to understand that shame leads to going underground, which leads to perpetuation, which leads to living the antithesis of how we really want to live. But the opposite isn't having your act together. The opposite is what I call, or I've read, I think Brene Brown said it, courageous vulnerability, which is to say, I am good in my essence, pure, like you've said, and this, this is my struggle. But the other thing that I want to say that just came up because you know we're, we're getting to the end is you want to stay doing what you're doing that's hurting you, stay with it. It's okay. Continue to do it. But start to be curious about yourself without judgment. Start to be compassionately curious about yourself. Meaning, in my case, oh, I recognize that at 5 p.m. I start to get like my heart starts to beat. I start to get like a mild euphoria because I know it's okay to like maybe have a drink soon. Or like I notice, wow, I notice that I start to get kind of down after 25 minutes of drinking. And that's when I reach for another drink. Oh, I notice that every night I'm waking up at 3 a.m. I'm noticing that I'm, I'm telling myself really bad things about myself in the morning. So in other words, start collecting data. You don't need to change your behavior. The initial step is to simply slow, slow yourself down enough, almost like a piece of gum that you're stretching and start to notice, wow, I'm starting to see that at this time, I tell myself this. Or at this time, my body starts to go into this. Or at this time, I put myself down for this. And write it down. Because what you're doing is you're slowing down the process. So you're not just um, sort of like disembodying yourself, meaning leaving yourself and just immediately going to your urge. But you're stretching it out and starting to be curious without judgment of yourself, of what in fact you're believing to be true, what you're telling yourself. And I think just doing that is a fabulous, very powerful way to get a very amazing process started. Wow. I'm going to just end with a quote. Okay. Just found this. I think it's Brene Brown. She says, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen 
when we have no control over the outcome. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. People who wade in dis into discomfort and vulnerability and tell the truth about their stories are the real, she says, badasses. <laughs> That's so Renee, Renee Brown. Well said, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> but the real superstars, honestly, the real superstars. And one other quote that I found that I liked, to share your weakness is to make yourself vulnerable. To make yourself vulnerable is to show your strength. Oh gosh, I had goosebumps. Amazing. <laughs> Allie, this was incredible as always. I'm like giving a huge shout out to the work that you do, the coaching that you do. I know that you have your, um, we're in your beautiful coaching studio. I don't, is that what you call it? Like your little, sure. what do you call it? It's, it's so office, cute. It's it amazing, beautiful office in the middle of Jerusalem. And if anyone here is listening that lives in Israel, I highly, highly recommend you find yourself in this beautiful like haven, this little space is like, it's just an incredible um, holy space right here that I'm sure you're going to help many people for, for many, many years exactly. to come. But um, <laughs> for all of you that are listening from abroad, are you also working on Zoom? Are you coaching people online or on by phone? Yes. Could you tell us how we could find you? I will give you my email, which is the best way to reach me, uh, which is coachingwitheden at gmail.com. The old-fashioned way, if you can call email old-fashioned, is the best way. Just email me if you'd like to make a free discovery session. I sound like an ad, but I say it really from my heart. I offer a free discovery session so you can decide if coaching with me is the right fit, if we can decide if it's, it's the right modality, if it's the right path for you. And the best way to reach me, you can go to my website, which is edenlifecoaching.org. And Eve's going to tell you what my handle yes, is. Yes, <laughs> so her, your handle, you should know this, mark it down. Your handle on Instagram is Eden Life Coaching, one word. And um, I'm assuming it's the same on Facebook I as well. I think so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Life coaching yeah. And yeah. I, I have a very strong feeling that this article will be the first of many, many articles to come that you will share with the world. And I'm so excited for, for what is to come. Thank you. And, and I just based on the quote that you just gave of Brene Brown, I'm going to say to you guys straight, I never thought my greatest vulnerability, my gray area drinking, the depression and anxiety and the incredible fear that it induced inside of me. And never in a million years did I understand that being honest and real and vulnerable with that would actually become my greatest strength. Mm -hmm. So what, what Eve just read from Brene Brown I am actually experiencing at this very moment. And I have to say, it, it feels so good, but not from an ego place, not from like an artificial high, but from a deep soul sense that this is the work that we have to do in this world. This is the redemption. This is redemptive work on a personal level and all of us can do it. So Eve, I want my turn to thank you. I feel like Eve helps women shine. And when we shine, it's like Eve's light just shines. I feel like there's orbs of light that are going to radiate through the room. Thank you. Thank you, Allie. And thank you all for being here and being part of our community of inspired Jewish women. You guys all add so much. Bye, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you for being a part of our community. There is so much more coming your way. Stay tuned and have a great, inspired day.